The Eastern Front, Episode 1, Blitzkrieg. Second, 1941. In what is now Lithuania, cows, horses, and sheep sleep or lazily crop grass. The neat farmhouses are dark. Crops sprout in the fields. As the day ends, if anyone's listening to radios in the cities, dance music plays. The longest day of the year leads, naturally, to the shortest night. At just past 3 a.m., the first glimmers of light appear on the eastern horizon, tinting faint orange and yellow. Far overhead, the drone of airplanes, bombers, pass toward the east. At precisely 3.05, the loudest thunder ever heard bursts the bucolic calm. Dawn becomes bright as midday for an instant, before it is swallowed by black smoke. In the words of one who was there, it is as if the jaws of hell Peaceful fields are torn apart by exploding bombs and shells. Airplanes scream lower to drop thousands of fragmentation explosives on unprepared defenders. This is the opening of Operation Barbarossa, the greatest land invasion in the history of humanity. Along a 2,000-kilometer front, from the Baltic to the Black Sea, nearly 4 million men in tanks Planes, armored cars, and on foot assaulted the largest nation in the world without warning. It was the invasion by Nazi-controlled Germany led by Adolf Hitler on the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics under Joseph Stalin. A clash of two brutal, murderous autocrats, but also of two inimical ideologies. A clash that would result in over 20 million deaths many times that in other casualties, and the redefinition of a world order that persists to this day more than 80 years later. Welcome to the Eastern Front Podcast. My name is Scott Burry. I'm the author of the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian drafted into the Soviet Red Army in World War II, and about 12 other books. This podcast is a new adventure for me. I've worked strictly in print for the last four decades, uh, and in researching my books and others, I learned a lot about history of the Second World War, and in particular, the Eastern Front. The conflict fought chiefly between Nazi Germany and Communist USSR. There must be thousands of books, films, articles, and yes, other podcasts about the Second World War. After all, its results shaped the world after 1945. And the world order persists to this day, largely. The illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine, starting in 2014 and persisting to now, which is 2022 as I speak, echoes the outcome of that titanic struggle from 1941 to 1945. It was the most costly bloody war in human experience. Even so, 
most of the material that's available in the West focuses on the West. The battles fought by the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, France, other Western countries. And while students and history buffs in the West know about things like the Siege of Leningrad or the impact, the impact of uh, winter in the, on the Eastern Front, uh, the Battle of Stalingrad, for example, most people haven't even heard of other equally important events in history, like Operation Typhoon, the Battle of Kursk, the destruction of Ternopil, or Operation Bagration. In my research, I found a number of podcasts about the Second World War or about specific parts of it, like the Battle of Britain or the War in North Africa. But I haven't found a single podcast yet that is dedicated to the Eastern Front. And this is ironic because, by far, that was the biggest part of this war in terms of numbers of People affected, the number of soldiers on the front, the amount of equipment, and the casualties. In fact, from the time Germany had launched its invasion of the USSR in 1941, it devoted five times the resources in men, material, and munitions to the Eastern Front as it did to the West. 75%, three quarters of all German losses in the entire war took place on the Eastern Front. In other words, we cannot hope to understand or appreciate the Second World War as a whole without understanding the history of that part of it, the largest single part of the war. So that's what I'm going to try to do with this podcast, shine a light on the important events of the biggest part of the greatest war in history. I'll also try to explore the background behind the war and the various events, the combatants, because there were more than just the Germans and the Soviets, and the historical implications. Now, I admit I'm not a professional historian. I'm a journalist, an editor, an author, with an interest in history. I've always had an interest in history since I was a kid when I picked up books in school or at the library. And since I started reading about world history, I've noticed and been frustrated by a lack of information available easily about Eastern Europe, about, for example, the development of the Russian Empire, especially when you compare that to the amount of information that's readily available, in fact, kind of unavoidable, about England especially here in Canada. Now, for full disclosure, my interest in the Eastern Front of the Second World War sharpened when I met my wife, Roxanne. Her father, Maurice Burry, was born in Canada to Ukrainian immigrants. How he came to be in Ukraine in 1941 and then get drafted into the Red Army is something I explain in a book called Army of Worn Souls. As of April 1941, Maurice Burry was in training as a junior officer in the Red Army. His memories of his experience in that conflict became the starting point for three books I wrote, Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War, 
together called the Eastern Front Trilogy. So what's this podcast about then? Well, Eastern Front podcast, I plan to proceed roughly chronologically, starting, as you heard, with the first day of the war. I'll try to describe events as they happened, to reflect at least a little bit the experience of the people of the time. That being said, the next episode, episode two, will break that pattern a little bit. So I'm going to go back a few years to understand how Germany and the Soviet Union became locked in this death struggle. A struggle, by the way, that ground millions of people between them. But as I said, that's for next episode. For now, let's go back to the first day. June 21st, 1941 was the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, followed by the shortest night. As a result, especially in the northern reaches of the German-Soviet border near the Baltic Sea, the first graying of the eastern sky began as early as 3 a.m. According to sun charts, the sun rose before 5 a.m. and set as late as 10.23 p.m., giving long hours of light for an attacking army. Nazi Germany had amassed 3.8 million men, 7,000 heavy artillery pieces, 17,000 mortars, over 3,700 tanks, some 3,000 aircraft, and thousands of other weapons, vehicles, not to mention more than a half million horses, along a front that stretched nearly 3,000 kilometers or 1,800 miles from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. They were organized into three major groups, Army Group North, set up near Tilsit in East Prussia, now called Sovetsk in Kaliningrad Oblast, Army Group Center in German-occupied Poland, and Army Group South, headquartered in eastern Poland. Army Group Center made two main thrusts into Belarusia, led by two panzer groups commanded by Generals Hermann Hoth and Heinz Guderian. They advanced on either side of a westward bulge in the border called the Bialystok Salient, then joined again east of Smolensk, trapping immense numbers of Soviet soldiers before a drive to Moscow, capital of the Soviet Union. To visualize this a bit better, you can check out the maps on the website. Credit where credit is due, I'm going to draw on a book called The First Day on the Eastern Front, written by Craig Luther and published in 2019 by Stackpole Books. It has all the details you could want. Barbarossa had been meticulously planned. During the short dark hours of June 21st and 22nd, German saboteurs slipped across the frontier to cut telephone and telegraph lines and murder unsuspecting border guards and sentries. Just before 3 a.m., bombers and fighters of the Luftwaffe took off. Between 3.05 and 3.15, depending on the location, thousands of German guns, mortars, howitzer, and cannon opened fire simultaneously as the first hints of grey appeared on the eastern horizon. At the same time, from Memel in the north to as far south as Sebastopol in the Crimean Peninsula, Luftwaffe bombers, dive bombers, and fighter planes attacked Soviet airfields, destroying thousands of Soviet planes on the ground. As stated in the war diary of the Panzer Division of Army Group North, quote, 0305 hours. 
The attack begins with the enormous concentrated blow of our artillery, firing from all barrels. The roar of the shells as they leave the guns virtually shakes the heavens. End quote. At the northernmost wing of the front, the German 16th Army concentrated its artillery fire in key areas. Elsewhere, most of its horses crossed silently across the border and caught the Soviet defenders completely by surprise. In less than two hours, they had captured all the major bridges and the mostly flat Lithuania. Likewise, the 12th Infantry Division of the 2nd Army Corps encountered no resistance from the Soviets until they passed hidden pockets of fighters who then opened fire from behind. This became the pattern along the 1,800-mile front, but more on that later. All along the 300-kilometer front of Army Group North, the attackers managed to seize almost every bridge intact. Every division advanced at least 15 to 20 kilometers by the end of the day. Panzer Division 8 made 90 kilometers. Army Group Center's two main thrusts experienced similar, if not quite as spectacular results. Led by two complete panzer or tank groups, they captured every bridge across the Niemen River, the main border between the German and Soviet occupation zones in the east. General Guderian, called Fast Heinz or Hurrying Heinz, broke with convention by leading with his tanks and motorized forces, and also captured every bridge across the Boog River. His forces encountered difficult terrain, but still penetrated deep into Soviet territory without encountering any significant resistance. Army Group South, by contrast, quickly ran into stiff opposition. It was attacking in territory that is now Ukraine. With the longest front of all three army groups, stretching 1,300 kilometers from the headwaters of the Pripet River to the mouth of the Danube, Army Group South's 41 divisions, including 25 infantry, 5 panzer, 3 motorized infantry, and comprising 972,000 men, launched its attack at exactly 0315, as the sun was just rising further south. Again, quoting from Craig Luther's book on the first day of the war, who himself quoted the journal of a German soldier named Hans Roth of the 299th Infantry Division. Quote, All of a sudden, at exactly 0315 hours, and apparently out of the blue, an opening salvo emerges from the barrels of hundreds of guns of all calibers. It is impossible to comprehend one's world in such an inferno. End quote. Unlike in the north and center, the invaders in the south encountered early, heavy resistance. From the Journal of the 17th Army, quote, But in front of the customs shed, the Russians were already offering stubborn resistance. Leutnant Alec was killed. He was the division's first fatal casualty, the first of a long list. The men laid him beside the customs shed. The heavy weapons rolled on by him over his bridge. In the south, the Soviet alarm system functioned with surprising speed and precision. Only the most forward pickets were taken by surprise. The 457th Infantry Regiment had to battle all day long with the Soviet NCO training school of Visokoya, only a mile beyond the river. The 250 NCO cadets resisted stubbornly and skillfully. Not till the afternoon was their resistance broken by artillery fire. The 466th Infantry Regiment fared even worse. 
No sooner were its battalions across the river than they were attacked from the flank by advanced detachments of the Soviet 199th Reserve Division. In the fields of Stubienka, the tall grain waved in the summer wind like the sea. Into this sea the troops now plunged. Both sides were lurking, invisible, stalking each other. Hand grenades, pistols and machine carbines were the weapons of the day. Suddenly they would be facing one another amid the rye, the Russians and the Germans, eye to eye. Whose finger was quicker on the trigger? Whose spade would go up first? Only with the fall of dusk did this bloody fighting in the rye fields come to an end. At the village of Oleksysia in Galicia, the area known in Ukrainian as a historic kingdom of Halicina, the invaders tried a more stealthy approach. German sharpshooters killed Soviet border sentries, individual artillery shells destroyed Soviet watchtowers, and combat engineers blasted through barbed wire to allow infantry to move quickly. Until 0400, they encountered virtually only small arms resistance, until the Soviet artillery responded. As the day wore on all along the front, the resistance got heavier and heavier, and German losses mounted. For example, around midday, when the 11th Panzer Division crossed the Bug River at Sokal, their advance was held up when they encountered Soviet bunkers. To quote General Major Ludwig Cruel's war diary, quote, Despite deployment of a battery of 88mm flak guns, the indomitable Russian bunker crews would doggedly continue their resistance and eventually require an infantry stostrup to neutralize them, end quote. Northeast of that position, the 57th Infantry Division encountered, quote, well-camouflaged bunkers of the most modern type. Unable to subdue them after protracted and bitter fighting, the infantry regiment simply bypassed the bunkers and continued to advance, leaving their destruction to follow-on assault teams, end quote. That was a risky tactic. As mentioned, the Soviet soldiers had a habit of hiding, for example, under haystacks letting the enemy pass, and then attacking from the rear. My father-in-law told me about a time he used this tactic when he was in the Red Army. He was the commander of a small anti-tank unit, and in August 1941, they took up a position behind the Pisol River in eastern Ukraine. But the shallow river did not even slow the panzers down. Maurice ordered his men to hunker down in a trench. When the panzers passed, they aimed at the back, at the exposed fuel tanks, their shots destroyed the panzers and allowed Maurice and his men to escape with the rest of the survivors of the battalion. Quoting again from Craig Luther's book, quote, In more than a few cases on June 22nd, Russian soldiers, concealed in farmsteads, wooded areas, or fields of tall grain, let their attackers go by only to fire on them from behind. They feigned death or surrender, then tossed hand grenades or shot at their startled adversaries. It was a way of war that General Gotthard Hanrisi, commander-in-chief of the 43rd Army Corps, and many other Germans labeled insidious. In other instances, captured German soldiers were tortured, killed, and horribly mutilated by enraged Red Army soldiers, while German doctors and stretcher-bearers soon discovered that their Red Cross armbands or ambulances offered no protection from Russian guns. End quote. So as we can see, Army Group South did not experience the same sweeping success that Army Group's North and Center did. Where the Germans penetrated as much as 90 kilometers into Lithuania, in Ukraine they advanced only 10 to 25 kilometers along most of the front. Only 25 kilometers. That's still a huge advance in one day for any military invasion.
and the death and destruction was incredible by any historical standards. But the slower progress was due to a number of factors. Terrain, for one, including marshes at the northern end and mountains on the south, poor roads, and the fact that the Soviets had prepared. They had actually anticipated that Germany would invade, just not this early. And they had also thought that Hitler's focus would be on Ukraine for its food and other resources. So that's where they built up the bulk of their defenses. Even so, the German advance on that first day was astounding. So let's sum it up. On that first day, German forces destroyed more than 700 Soviet aircraft, most of them on the ground. And of course, they didn't stop there. In the first 18 days of the operation, the Germans inflicted at least 747,870 casualties on the Soviets, destroyed more than 10,000 tanks and almost 4,000 aircraft. According to historian David Glantz in Barbarossa, Hitler's Invasion of Russia in 1941, these losses were both unprecedented and astounding. But the losses were far from one-sided. Craig Luther states that in the first nine days of the war, by the end of June 1941, more than 25,000 Germans were dead, an average of almost 2,800 every day. That first day set the pattern for the next two years. By the late fall, the Germans, with their reluctant Finnish allies, had virtually encircled Leningrad in the north, reached deep into Russia, captured Kiev and two-thirds of Ukraine. By the end of 1941, they had come to within 80 kilometers of Moscow itself and captured virtually all of Ukraine and Crimea. But just as the first day showed, the farther they went, the slower they advanced, and the greater became their losses. In November, German Army Chief of Staff Halder admitted that the army would never again be as powerful as it was on June 21, 1941. In 1942, Hitler turned his attention on the Eastern Front southward, and the Wehrmacht advanced to the Caucasus oil fields and the city of Stalingrad at the bend of the Volga River. In the north and center, however, they made no further progress. It was the high water mark for Nazi Germany. But that's for later episodes. Next week, we'll back up to the 1930s for a look at what brought Germany and Russia to war in 1941. We'll look at their evolving relationship through the 30s and the context of the whole war in 1941. In 1940, so for now, I want to thank all who have contributed to the Kickstarter campaign to launch the podcast. Those are CJ Sally, Chris Ward, writer and friend, writer and friend, J.L. Oakley, writer and friend, Roger Eschbacher, Seb Kirby, writer and friend, Jeff G. Turner of Woi Woi Australia, and S. LaRouche, who didn't tell me where he or she's from. Don't forget, you can continue to support the program through Patreon. The link is in the show notes, or you can find Beyond Barbarossa on Patreon.com. Every contribution of $5 US per month and more gives you patron access, all episodes in advance of the general release, ad-free, and the bonus episodes. And if you think I've made any errors or mispronounced a name, please let me know so I don't do it again. Patreon patrons can send me 
uh, instant messages through that app. You can also send me an email or contact me through Twitter, Facebook, or through the comments on the webpage. All those links are in the show notes. Finally, thank you for listening to the first episode of the Eastern Front podcast with music by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, as the canoeists say, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>